bear with me today, Pastor asked me to read all of Romans chapter 14. So that's our reading for today. And it's a contrast to the weak and the strong. Verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand and fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if any regards anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let you know, do, do not let what you know what is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for its admonition to us to be concerned about each other's brothers and sisters in our walk with you. 
I pray that you'll give Pastor Trey wisdom and grace as he teaches us the principles contained in this passage today. And I pray that uh, you'll give us the uh, vision that Pastor has for our church to make us a church of faith and righteousness and peace and joy as given in this passage. Give us humble hearts that we may not seek to have division but to be in submission to one another. I just pray, Lord, that you'd help the weak to see the, the grace that there is in God and we are free to serve him. And let help and let Lord help those who walk in grace to be humble and unwilling to harm the faith of their brothers. Lord, we just need wisdom in seeking the path that you'd have us to walk. And we thank you in Jesus' name for just loving us who we are, giving us grace and giving us peace and joy and faith to follow you. In the name I pray, amen. Thank you, Larry. Hey, folks, good morning. Hey, glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, why don't you grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the book of Romans. If you're using a pew Bible like the one I have here, it's on uh, page 920, actually 921, uh, Romans 14. Uh, the passage that Larry just read is where we are going to be this morning as we continue on in our sermon series, New Love, New Year, talking about how we can uh, love each other uh, as Christians in the body of Christ the way the Bible tells us. Uh, part four of, uh, of this sermon series I've entitled Love in the gray. Love in the gray, as hopefully we will learn how to love one another uh, over disputable gray matters. Romans chapter 14, we'll look at about half of the, half of the chapter this morning is all I'm going to be able to get through. Uh, so I hope you're there or close to it. Let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Father, bless the teaching and the hearing and the receiving of your word. May it uh, translate into our living. Father, help us to love well in the gray as there are many areas and matters of life that your word is, uh, is unclear about and you allow us to follow our own conscience. Father, may we do so uh, with a full conviction, uh, fully convinced in our own mind, and may we not judge or condemn or uh, ha- treat with contempt our brothers and sisters who think likewise. Father, make this church a church of peace and of grace, we pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. So I want to begin just with a few questions for you, and uh, they're questions that I wouldn't like for you to answer out loud, but there are questions I'd like for you to answer in your mind, just to clarify, right? Answer it in your mind, not out loud, and uh, a bit of a warning, they may be trick questions, okay? So they may be uh, just a bit of a trick questions, but here we go. I want you to answer these questions in your mind. Number one, uh, what is appropriate for a Christian in the following matters? Are we ready? What is uh, the appropriate dress for the Christian in the church setting? Is it uh, casual or is it formal? Is it uh, suit and tie or is it shorts and sandals? What is appropriate? You got your answer? How about this one? What about, uh, what about going down to, the, uh, to uh, Louisiana and, and doing some gambling or maybe going to Las Vegas? What about gambling, putting some money on the table? Is that acceptable? Is that morally acceptable for a Christian? What about uh, music? What about what you have playing at home or on your phone or on your, your iPad? Is, is it okay for Christians to listen to secular music? Is it okay? Uh, what about this one? What about what we watch on our TV screens? Is it acceptable for a Christian to watch a good boxing match or maybe a good MMA match? I'm not going to do a kick because I'll hurt myself, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Is it, is it okay for Christians to watch that? 
what about Christians who might want to watch a, a, a movie that's uh, other than PG, let's just say? Is that, is that acceptable for the Christian? What about tattoos? Tattoos on your shoulder or on your foot or elsewhere? Is, is that acceptable behavior for a Christian to have a tattoo? What about our behavior on Sundays? Is it okay for us to go home from church and to do a little work? Can we work on Sundays? I sure hope so, because I'm working right now. But is it okay, right? Can Christians work on Sunday? What about, what about certain holidays that kind of have a, a pagan background? Say Halloween, for, for example. Is it okay for us and our children uh, to kind of observe a, a Halloween? What about swimming? Is it okay for us as Christians to allow boys and girls to swim together? Is that, is that acceptable? Uh, what about the pastor's dress? Must the pastor wear a tie? And everyone said, no. Okay, no, I heard a yes. You are incorrect. I, I, so I'm just letting you know. I, I'm going to answer that one for you. The answer is no. So, okay, so these are, these are somewhat trick questions, right? And the reason I bring these issue, issues up uh, is because I think they all fall under the category of what Paul is talking about for a whole chapter in Romans chapter 14, uh, Romans chapter 14, what he calls disputable matters. Disputable matters. You know, we're talking about love, right? We're talking about loving each other in the church. And uh, from my really brief experience in church life, one of the ways that Satan tries to create disunity, discord, in division in a local church is to divide that local church and its members over matters that are amoral. That is, they are neither morally right or morally wrong in and of themselves. And church, a, fail, a failure to understand passages like Romans 14, passages like 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, a failure for, a failure for us to understand the existence of what I will call a biblical gray can do much harm in a local church. That is why, starting in Romans chapter 14, Paul uh, takes up the issue. There were issues in the church there in the great city of Rome. There were Christians, and they were having disagreements. They were disagreeing over certain things, and it was creating, apparently, some division and some disunity. These issues were amoral issues, disputable matters. And so Paul writes to them uh, 2,000 years ago, and he writes to us, here today to speak on the issue of loving well in the gray. Uh, one pastor by the name of Krell, Kenneth Krell, I think sets the stage for what we just heard and what we'll hear again in Romans 14. So I, I'd like to quote him. He says this. He says, in the vitally important application chapters of Romans 12 through 15, No subject is dealt with in greater detail than our convictions concerning Christian liberties. He says Paul devotes nearly two chapters to this subject. In his discussion, he addresses various controversies, various controversies between the so-called, quote, weak and the so-called, quote, strong Christians in the church of Rome. Most likely, he says, the, quote, weaker Christians were primarily Jewish Christians. And the, quote, stronger Christians were primarily Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. He says both groups were divided over inconsequential issues. Issues like avoiding certain meats, verse 2. 
observing certain sacred days, verse 5, and abstaining from wine, verse 21. The weak, he says, believed, and this is important that we understand these categories, the weak, he says, believed that if the Bible hadn't specifically approved of something, then it was probably wrong, the weak. He says those that were, quote, strong on a matter, on the other hand, believed if the Bible hadn't specifically forbidden something, then it was probably in the realm of Christian liberty, he says. In chapter 14, Paul argues, Paul argues that both groups, both the, quote, strong and the, quote, weak, need to exercise both humility and grace with one another. So, as we work our way through the first 15 verses of this chapter, I see four principles. Four principles, if you're taking notes, jot these down as we go along. Paul, I think, gives us four broad, sweeping categories for dealing with these disputable matters in a local church. Are we ready for the first one? Here we go. In verses 1 through 4, Paul essentially says that we need to accept one another on these matters and that we should not pass judgment on one another. We should accept and not pass judgment over matters that are amoral. They are disputable matters. So he begins in verse 1. And if you have your Bibles, you can look in your Bible or look on the screen. He begins in verse 1 by addressing the stronger Christian on the matter. The stronger believer on the matter, that is the one who feels free to exercise their biblical freedom in a gray area. And he tells that stronger Christian, he says that they need to accept the weaker. They need to accept the weaker Christian who refuses to use their biblical freedom. Let's read verse 1. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over, and there's our word, disputable matters. So if you're a stronger Christian, you feel like you have liberty in a particular area, but your brother refuses to use that liberty, he says, Accept them, right? Accept them as one of your own. And he gives uh, the first of really three examples, two that we'll look at today. And the first example of what was going on in the church at Rome had to do with what Christians could eat. Now, for you and I, I presume most of us are are Gentiles. I don't know if any of you out there have any kind of Jewish uh, ancestry or background. But uh, for most of us, we, we come to passages like this and we're like, what's the big deal, right? We can eat whatever we want. Who likes bacon? I like bacon. Yeah, who likes pork chops? I like pork chops, right? It's just not a big deal to us. But in that day, and in the early church, where the early church was mostly Jewish Christians, and then increasingly Gentile Christians, what a Christian could eat, it was a big deal. It was dividing the church. And so Paul gives this example in verse 2. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything. Read Gentile Christian. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, right? I can eat bacon if I want. But another, read Jewish Christian, but another whose faith is weak on this particular matter eats only vegetables, right? So again, many of these early Christians were Jews, and they were steeped in Judaism in the Old Testament. And of course, if you read the Old Testament, you know that there were certain things, certain foods that God prohibited his people from eating. And so these Jews became Christians, and they had a question, well, Can I now eat pork or shellfish or whatever it might be, right? And so they struggled with what they could or couldn't eat. To where a Gentile Christian got saved, came into the church, 
what's, what's the big deal, right? What's, what's the big deal? He says this in verse 3. He sets up the scenario and then he applies it. What are two things that Christians in that scenario, one exercises liberty, one does not? What should both of them not do? Let's see in verse 3 and 4. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. And here's the reason why. For God has accepted them. Verse 4. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So here's what he says in verse 3. He says that the one who partakes, read Gentile Christian, should not treat with contempt or think lesser of the one who doesn't partake, read Jewish Christian. He adds that the one who doesn't partake, the Jewish Christian, shouldn't judge the Gentile Christian. He shouldn't call it sin when the Gentile Christian has some ham, right? Or some pork, or some pork chops, right? And here's the reason why. Because God has accepted that Gentile Christian. God accepts their behavior. It's not morally wrong. God accepts them. And he says that God, the Lord, will make them stand, meaning he will approve of their actions. So, let me try my best to flesh this out in modern-day America, 21st century Christianity, moving from Rome to the United States of America. When I was in college, um, I went to... A state university, uh, lots and lots of people. And there were quite a few Christians, lots of Christians, uh, where I went to school. And so it was a tremendous blessing. Of course, there are lots of unbelievers too, right? When you got 50,000 people on a campus, you got a lot of both. Um, and so I ran around mostly uh, with my Christian friends that went to my church uh, that were in uh, different uh, organizations on campus. And, and I quickly came to discover that Christians who were 21 and I make that point to say that, who were 21, they could drink alcohol, they were divided over this issue. There were Christians uh, at my school who said, um, for whatever reason, like numerous reasons, I don't feel like I should drink alcohol. Maybe they didn't want to hurt their witness. Maybe they were afraid of the consequences. Maybe they just said, I don't know, I was taught it was a sin, and my my conscience says I can't. For whatever reason, there was a group who said, I'm just not going to drink. And there was a group of Christians, uh, godly men and women, who said, biblically, this is okay. I'm not going to get drunk, so I, I can drink. The Bible says that. And, uh, and they were okay with that. And inevitably what happened, I can't tell you how many times I've heard chatter going back and forth between the two, something, something like this, right? So the, the, the group that didn't drink, they abstained. Here the, quote, weaker Christian. They would often judge their brothers and sisters who chose to drink. They would say things like, of course not to their face, but they would say it amongst themselves. They're, they're just worldly Christians. They're worldly Christians. They don't want to stand out for Christ. Boy, they're really compromising their witness. What were they doing? They were judging their brothers and sisters. Exactly what Paul tells us not to do. But then the drinking group who would exercise their freedom, what would they say? Well, I would hear them say things like, well, those Christians, those teetotalers, man, they're just legalists. They're legalists. They don't, they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand that, that the Bible doesn't call drinking alcohol sin. Man, they really don't want to be in the world. They don't want to rub shoulders. They stay in their holy huddle. And you see the picture that I'm painting, right? Two groups 
two different decisions, and what were they doing? They were judging, and they were showing contempt for one another. And Paul says, when you find yourself in either of those situations, don't do either of those. Both responses, he says, is wrong, right? So, first, church, if we're going to love well in the gray, we need to do what Paul says. We need to accept and not pass judgment on issues that are truly amoral. They are truly, biblically, not right or wrong, up to the conscience of the Christian. But that's not all. Secondly, he goes on to say in verses 5 through 9, that not only should we accept and not pass judgment on our fellow Christians in these disputable matters, but we should follow our own convictions. He says, you, as a, as a Christian who follows Christ, you follow your own convictions as unto the Lord on these matters. So let's take a look at verses 5 through 9. 5 through 9. The second way to love in the gray is to follow our own convictions, right? In verse 5, Paul gives a second example, right? What was the first example in Rome? It was what the Christians could eat or what they could not eat. He gives a second illustration of something that was causing the Christians in Rome to butt heads with one another. And it was the observance of, let's just say, religious days. Religious days. Most likely, he's referring to some Christians wanting to keep the Sabbath, which was on Saturday. And some Christians wanting to participate in the Jewish festivals that the Old Testament prescribed. And then some did not. Again, read Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian. Let's take a look at what he says in verse 5. One person, example number 2, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. So here's the point. What should we do as a church if we find ourselves with a disputable matter? One person says this, one person says that. What should we do? Notice the tail end of verse 5. Each of them should be fully convinced. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds. What this means is that every Christian, me, you, every Christian, has the freedom and the responsibility to make up our own minds in these matters, right? In matters that are truly um, disputable, amoral matters, right? We have the freedom to make up our own mind and to be fully convinced, to follow our convictions fully, right? The reason why, notice this, the reason why he says that each Christian should be fully convinced in his own mind, in these matters, is because Christians on both sides of the aisle, Christians who partake and Christians who abstain, Christians who eat, Christians who don't, Christians who drink, Christians who don't, Christians who observe this day and Christians who don't observe that day. He says both of them, theoretically, it should be, both of them do so, they make that decision. Why? To please Jesus. They make that decision because they want to serve Jesus, right? Let's look. He makes it clear in 6 through 9. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. Verse 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, 
We die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, he says, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Did you notice the repetition in that little section of one particular word? It starts with an L, ends with a D, O and R are in the middle, right? Lord, Lord. The lordship of Jesus is preeminent in this passage. And he says, listen, the reason why two Christians can disagree on an amoral matter and be fully convinced of it is because what motivates them in that matter, at least it should, is they want to please Jesus, right? Plain and simple. And so what does that mean for us? I think two things. First of all, we need to make sure that our motive is to please Jesus when we consider any of these matters, right? And so as we are considering a a, a gray, disputable, amoral matter, we need to ask ourselves, why am I choosing to do what I do, right? Why am I choosing to do this? What is my motive? So questions like this. Is the way that I dress primarily to please my master Jesus and advance his kingdom? Or is it to garner glances from other people? Am I choosing to watch, let's say, this R-rated movie to please Jesus and advance his kingdom because I know my coworkers are going to be talking about it. It's all the buzz. And I want to be conversant with culture and speak about Christian worldview to them. Or are we doing it because we simply want to be entertained, regardless of what that movie might expose us to? So we have to ask ourselves, what motivates me? In this matter. Second, not only should we examine our own motive, but I think we need to give other people, other Christians, the benefit of the doubt on their motives, right? We examine our motives on the issue, but but we shouldn't presume to examine their motives on the issue. So, for instance, assuming assuming that a Christian woman who, who maybe wears a bonnet on her head presuming that she is somehow a spiritual show-off, when she might simply be wanting to submit to her husband and please Jesus, we shouldn't presume that, right? We shouldn't presume these things. We shouldn't presume that the Christian family who goes trick-or-treating is totally ignorant of the pagan background and somehow they're participating in witchcraft. We shouldn't assume that. We should assume that they want to rub shoulders with other community members and let their light shine and be good neighbors because that's what Jesus said, right? So we have to be very careful, church, about presuming the motives of another Christian on a matter that is biblically gray. So how do we love well in the gray? He says we accept and we don't pass judgment. He says we fully follow our own convictions. And third, he says we leave the judging to God. We leave the judging to God. Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12, 10 through 12, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of of ourselves to God. So Paul has brought up this point in verse 4 about not judging a brother or sister on these matters. He returns there. It's important to him, right? He reiterates it. He says, listen, don't judge. Don't have contempt on these matters. And here's the point. He says that 
He says, your Christian brother or your sister will have to give an account of their actions and decisions to God, right? They will have to give an account of their motives and their decisions on these matters to God. They don't need to give that account to you, right? Instead of being concerned with the neutral decisions of other Christians, he says, you should be prepared for how God will judge you. Not in matters of heaven and hell, if you're a Christian, right? That's settled the moment we trust Jesus as our Savior alone, but for our eternal reward. So, let me ask you, friends, let me ask you, have you, like I certainly have been, have you been guilty of judging your brother or your sister in Christ over decisions that are disputable and gray? For instance, have you whispered in the spouse, uh, maybe the, uh, the ear of your spouse, words of judgment? I can't believe that she's wearing that to church. I wouldn't ever let my kid do that. Don't they know what kind of things happen in that place? Do they realize the words that are in that music? And all of the sudden we place ourselves in the position of the weaker Christian judging our stronger brother or sister for the decisions that they've made. Maybe you've looked with contempt as a stronger Christian on a particular matter on a believer who is limiting their liberties. I know that I have. I know that I have. Saying things like, I can't believe that that Christian won't even have a drink in public. It is a wedding, you know. Or I can't believe, I can't believe that she won't let her girls wear a two-piece bathing suit. I can't believe it, right? And we, in the place of liberty, look with those who limit their liberty with contempt. Friends, we need to leave the judging to God. Fourth, Fourth and finally, Paul says that if we want to love well in the gray, we must not only accept and not pass judgment, follow fully our convictions, leave the judging to God, but we should limit our liberty in love. Specifically, if we find ourselves on any of these issues as the, quote, stronger Christian, we are inclined to pursue our liberties. He says, listen, liberty, Christian liberty, should always be limited by your love for your brother or your sister. Again, in verse 13, he calls for a ceasefire on these Christians in Rome judging each other on amoral issues. You think that's important to him? He's reiterated it time and time again. He calls then the Christians who choose to exercise their rights on a matter of freedom, amoral amoral matters, to decide in their minds and decide in their hearts never to do something never to practice their freedom to the detriment of a brother or a sister who chooses differently. Did you catch that? Who chooses differently. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind, right? Decide in your heart. Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Literally here, uh, the word stumbling block describes an object along a person's path which a person would, uh, would trip over. They would, they would strike their foot against it and they would fall over. Uh, if you've ever been to my house, I've got four kids under seven. We've got all sorts of stumbling blocks around, right? It's like every step, there's a stumbling block. There's a stumbling block. And often, 
I do that, right? You stub your toe, oh, or you trip on a toy, oh, you know? Stumbling blocks everywhere, right? Paul says, listen, Christian who wants to exercise his, his liberty, don't put stumbling blocks in the way of the weaker Christian on the matter. In Greek, this word obstacle, he says the NIV translates it obstacle. Don't put a stumbling block or an obstacle. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a word that describes a snare or a trap that is set uh, for animals. You know what I mean? Like it's a trap and you put a piece of meat because, oh, and they smell it and it's, and it's tempting. They, they want to eat the meat and so they find their, their you know, little way into the, into, and they eat the meat. But what happens when they take the meat? Boom, right? The door shuts and they're trapped, right? Paul says that we, as stronger Christians on a matter, if we exercise our liberty uh, in such a way, it, it might actually cause uh, another Christian to see what we're doing and to say, that looks okay. I might want to do that. I, I think I could do that even though my conscience says I, I shouldn't. And in doing so, we are acting like that piece of meat caught tempting our brother or sister to do something. 